Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily, and today we have the honor of having Dr. Bill Brennan with us. Now, Bill is the Executive Director for Innovation, Communications, and Organizational Development in Farmingdale Schools in Long Island, New York. Working with the leadership team in Farmingdale, he instituted an overhaul of professional practices related to organizational learning and successfully established Farmingdale schools in the leadership team as an incubator for innovative leadership and learning. As a result of his work, Farmingdale schools has hosted over 75 school districts in 2016. In addition to his work in Farmingdale, Bill has taught at the master's and doctoral level for several universities, including Fordham, Sacred Heart, and Long Island University. He has published articles on leadership, innovation, and professional learning for numerous publications. Over the past decade, he has delivered several keynote addresses, including two TEDx talks. Now, in his 17th year of education, Bill believes it is time to boldly reimagine the learning experiences for our students and teachers. What I love about Bill's point of view here is that he believes the future is emerging within us. In his work, Bill helps people to engage their beginner mindset, a clearer canvas for looking at the present and future opportunities in our schools. A master facilitator, he helps educators craft a new point of view while leveraging the collective wisdom of his groups. He is constantly listening to the inner voices of his students, teachers, and colleagues to understand and channel their deepest of intentions. People describe Bill as a perspective builder, a trendsetter, mentor, a devoted listener, coach, and wickedly bright, who has the incredible ability to see and understand organizations. Bill believes that all organizational innovations start with profound innervation, I-N-N-E-R-V-A-T-I-O-N, innervation. This is at the heart of Bill's work as a school leader, consultant, and facilitator of several leadership incubators. As we lean into this new emerging future, Bill challenges school leaders to focus on developing their capacities around self-awareness, system awareness, and systems thinking, collaboration, and activating the intentions of others. Bill asks, What if the main role of leadership is to activate the intentions and purposes of others? Just this month, July 2016, I had the honor of attending the Collaborative Leadership Institute, which was facilitated by Bill Brennan and Corey Mascara, and he does amazing work on mindset. So we took this two-day journey together. And I, along with about 80 leaders, experienced a profound shift in our thinking. Recently, Bill was chosen as Nassau County School Library System Administrator of the Year, 
and was a national finalist for Educational Innovator of the Year. Bill credits his success to his family, his children for always offering the perspective needed to ground himself, the schools where he studied, and the endless mentors whom have guided him along this journey. So welcome, uh, Dr. Bill Brennan. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Great. Um, We're so happy to have you on our podcast. So as you know, um, the podcast takes us on a journey to master leadership, and we're going to do that today by asking you key questions. So are you ready to pour into our listeners? I can't wait. Thank you. So my first question is, what inspired you to choose educational leadership as a career path? You know, I, I started my career off as a science teacher in a middle school, and uh, being given the right opportunities and right conditions, I worked for some great mentors, great principals, a superintendent, and uh, I was really uh, inspired by them, you know, to see the level of influence that they could actually have, not just on a class, but on a building and systemically on an entire organization. And mm-hmm. uh that's really where my influence comes. It also came from my work as a uh, master's student and eventually doctoral student, where I just um, really enjoyed studying organizations and how we uh, influence organizations to just do um, amazing things. Okay. So as a science teacher, and I think um, Michael Keeney, your partner, he's he started that way too, didn't he? Yeah. So interestingly, Mike was also a science teacher, um, and uh, him and I... Uh, our paths just uh, crossed at a, at a really uh, special time. We've been close colleagues, friends, partners, uh, and he pretty much serves as a, as a mentor for me uh, since the day I met him. Just an amazing, amazing human being. Well, you know, it's funny because he describes you as scary smart. <laughs> <laughs> So I didn't know when I first came, I was like, well, I don't know, <laughs> scary smart. He has so many great things to say about you, so which is why I'm here. No, that's, <laughs> okay. that's too kind from Mike. So, um, Bill, how would you describe your leadership style? You know, leadership is one of those things you're always trying to figure out. What is it that uh, you assert or how do you assert? How do you influence? And, you know, we were talking about this just a little while ago about um, – You know, at the end of the day, it is ultimately about influence. It's about influence around some sort of compelling idea and action, something that's going to cause people to want to be part of something bigger than themselves. Mm -hmm. And so leadership is really about that. You know, um, leadership, I think, is about driving and shaping the conversation. You know, I like to refer to uh, leadership as being the uh, the design architects or the social architects behind creating uh, just amazing, fascinating movements for students and teachers. Um, you know, interestingly, lately, I've been thinking a lot more about this as uh, I'm working on a special event July 6th and 7th. It's a summer leadership institute all around collaborative leadership and innovation. And uh, it occurred to me just the other day that uh, perhaps a new definition for me or understanding of leadership is really about activating people's intentions. You know, Mm -hmm. part of our struggle in this era of complexity, uncertainty, volatility is trying to put attention on our intentions. And so... How does a leader focus the organization, put attention on what's most important, that which we value, our cause, our why, as you say? Mm -hmm. Um, 
but how do you activate those intentions in people that are part of this human organization that we have here? And that's not a, you know, an easy task, but intention certainly requires self-reflection as well. It, it certainly does. Reflection is a, is a big piece of that. Um, but also this notion of awareness, you know, we, we truly need to get a better sense of not just our own self-awareness, but our awareness within the ecosystem of our school within our organization and uh, where are the pockets of influence, where are the levels by which we can create some movement and, and mobilize, um, you know, people just to do amazing things. So, you know, I, I read somewhere and this was, I've never heard this before, but I read somewhere that you were described as a respectful disruptor. <laughs> in fact, I think Michael Keeney told me that too. And so, tell me what that what that's about. Uh, so it's interesting. The idea came to me about four or five years ago. I was hired in uh, in Farmingdale Public Schools, which is just a school district that is uh, truly creating learning experiences for both teachers and students that are preparing them for the future. And, and I mean capacities. We're really focused on developing the capacities that are going to allow our kids and teachers to thrive uh, in these moments of uncertainty, ambiguity, uh, volatile uh, context of education nowadays. And so we've kind of gone ahead and do that. And you know, the, the idea of a respectful disruptor or lead innovator is uh, what my, my title is on Twitter. It was never kind of an official title. but so that's where I read it. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, part of, part of this whole thing called leadership is about crafting the narrative. And the question I ask is, what is the narrative that we're seeking to create in our schools today? Um, I have some fun with this, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I enjoy the opportunity to observe um, in many different capacities, whether it's students or teachers or principals or even working closely with the superintendent tenant and and people from all over the area, um, but to respectfully push back, you know, to kind of instigate some dialogue and discourse that maybe makes people feel uncomfortable, but do it in a respectful way where that psychological safety exists, that they're willing to create or take some risk. I think that's a key element of, of leadership is being able to, it's not about being right or wrong. You know, that's one of the things like leaders have to give up the, their affiliation with having to always be right, I suppose. But how do we kind of engage in real generative dialogue and discussion around meaningful and important things? And so that to me is what respectful disruption is about. And crafting narrative. That's very interesting. So you, I'm assuming that you practice intentionally doing that wherever you go, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, the narrative is critical. You know, we've been telling stories as human beings longer than we've been writing on paper or you know, forget about laptops or, or mobile devices. But we as humans have been telling stories much longer than we have been doing any other forms of communication. And so we have to realize is that, um, you know, that becomes a form of our communication. And, and narrative is, is what is our narrative in education today? I'm going to be honest. I think sometimes we've lost sight of that. I think that picture is a little bit foggy for many. I think it's been distracted and clouded by some of the uh, politics and, you know, the funding schemes and and what's gone on with all that sort of stuff in education. You know, everybody everybody outside of education or most people outside of education, I should say, especially the newspapers, the, the politics, all that sort of stuff is not celebrating as much as they should be what teachers and students are doing today. And, uh, I make the point that, you know, we can either create schools that adapt to that environment 
that are reacting to that environment, or we can create schools that are shaping and driving a much more important conversation around what teaching and learning should be today. That's the narrative we have to create. The times have changed. You know, we've talked about our own children, my children included, who don't view technology the way that I did or, you know, any of us do as adults. In fact, you know, if you think about today's graduate in 12th grade, they don't remember a time before the Internet. So it's about shaping our narrative or shifting our narrative. And we got to get really creative about that. Um, I've shared with a number of people before that I spent an entire week as a high school student at Farmingdale High School three years ago. A student just employed a technique known as narrative inquiry. I wanted to just live with the students and see what their world was. The best part about that whole experience was that many teachers thought that I was doing that on their behalf. Mm. And originally I wasn't. I was just going in there to be a student. And so this relationship building process really took a whole nother life when the teacher started to realize, hey, he's really interested in what I go through every day. And it was eye-opening in that sense too. But these folks had a different point of view and perspective that I didn't have. And Mm. that's what, you know, collaboration is like in its uh, most creative form, I think. So what was your biggest takeaway there? You know, um, the biggest takeaway for me is, is a couple of things. Number one, there's still, uh, to a large part across this country, I imagine, uh, an expectation that teachers are still, you know, transferring knowledge to students. And that's not what I saw every time, but we're in a, in a system where institutional memory has, has, has caused us to believe that the smartest person in the room is often the teacher or, or the principal when you think about a faculty meeting. And, you know, we all know that the smartest person in the room is, is the room and our, our best teachers. And, well, you and, know, the, the funny thing is that a lot of people don't know that. I mean, we, we yeah. want to assume that, that that's, you know, but a lot of people don't know that. And I've come across that. I've come across people like you, which I'm so excited about, and like-minded thinkers where collectively we know we're better than just one person, even though you're crazy or not crazy smart, <laughs> but scary smart. <laughs> um, but a lot of people don't know that. Yeah, and, and that's, you know, that's, I think, a big piece of that is kind of uh, understanding our role in working with people, whether it's students or adults. You know, it's about cultivating that. It's about facilitating that. Just like a good lesson, the the best faculty meetings, the best department meetings, the best PD meetings are one where there's really excellent planning behind the scenes and with an intention that is focused on really cultivating the voices within the room. And so rather than this transfer of knowledge, it's really more about the creation of knowledge and the generative discussion that gets created that ultimately causes knowledge creation and people have voice in that you know engaging the voices of the room whether it's a class of 25 kids or it's an audience of you know more and and i know that happens when we're we're not fearful or we're not so concerned about being right or wrong correct yeah you know fear is one of the big things um many people will talk about i i said a couple years ago in a talk you know asked the question do you think that people fear change and every single hand went up in the room But then I reframe the question. Do you think people fear change or do you think that they fear being changed? And what's interesting about change is you can look at change more or less as something that's dying. And in order to make room for something new to be born, you have to be willing to let go of those things that need to be (laughs) let go of. 
And so with any good change, there is a process where one has to more or less, forgive the term, but mourn what's about to go. And so to make room for what has to be born. And so taking that into account is, is critical. But the best change is when you have something that's more compelling than what existed before. And people want to be a part of that. And we're seeing the radical acceleration of change in education today through the creation of laboratories, innovation labs. We're modeling these sort of practices in our current PD model here in Farmingdale, and uh, it's actually the impetus for why I've created the Collaborative Leadership Institute, and eventually the Collaborative Leadership uh, Laboratory is just a shared space to kind of tap the collective wisdom of the, of the masses. Speak into that. What's your leadership style? So, you know, it's hard to just pick one leadership style because I think, you know, um, the approach that one uses all depends on, on the context and the situation at hand. I, I'll try to describe it like this, and I don't know if there's a word to this or a, a name to this theory, and, and I want to kind of maybe come up with one if there isn't. I believe that uh, currently in our educational climate, we have a lot of people who are more or less sleepwalking at times, you know, that we're just going through the motions. We're somewhat disconnected with our purpose, you know, and and that's been distracted by many things which we've kind of already talked about. And I want to believe, and I do believe, because I'm seeing it in action today um, in a number of places, especially Farmingdale and the work that we're doing at the Collaborative Leadership Institute, is that there's an ability today to tap, to wake up the latent energy, the dormant energy, the the energy that's there, and to bring people more connected uh, to their purpose. Once you do that, once you start to do that with a few people, it is really exciting and it it rejuvenates uh, the organization. You know, I ask a lot of leaders a lot of times, you know, to reflect on their trajectory, both professionally and organizationally. What kind of trajectory are you on today? And are the habits that you, um, you know, have today really uh, connected with the dreams and aspirations that you have uh, for tomorrow? And so that requires a very intentional shift about what it is you focus your energy on. But we got to start to have fun in education. It's a fun leadership style is what I'm talking about. You know, professional learning is done in the form of camps. It's done in the form of labs. It's done in the form of institutes. It's, It's, you know, it's teachers owning it, teachers having a voice in it. Because at the end of the day, they're the ones that matter the most. They have the greatest influence on students, and you know we have to engage their voices. And that makes sense. I, I learn most when I'm having fun, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so tell me, which quote or quotes about leadership speak to you and why? You know, I'd, I'd have to say that probably the quote that resonates with me the most nowadays is, is from Simon Sinek's work. And, you know, he talks a lot about the power of why. And uh, one of one of my favorite quotes from him is that, you know, our cause is truly the destination and our strategy is the route. And if we would have impact, the destination must be fixed, but the route is flexible. Mm-hmm. And what I love about that is that we have to start to really think about what our cause is. We have to get really clear about what it is we're seeking to create as a learning organization, as a learning community. What is our cause individually in this in this thing called school, this thing called education? Mm-hmm. And get back to that, you know? I mean, there's been so many distractors along the way. But one of the things about this quote that really, uh, you know, resonates with me again is this notion of the route. As we lean into this future... There's quite a bit of ambiguity. It's complex. 
it's somewhat chaotic, some would argue. And so to do so, to lean into this foggy future, is hard. And if you don't have a clear sense of what the cause is, it could be you know, even harder. But as we think about the route to achieving our cause, I think we have to start to invite some new capacities and develop some new capacities in our systems, in our organizations, and in our people. And these capacities are things like becoming more self-aware, having a sense of greater sense of what it is that I'm seeking to assert, to, to be a part of the movement and being aware of that, to also develop the capacities around collaboration, you know, to work intelligently with, with people. And collaboration can just be a means to an end unless it kind of evolves some higher levels of collective thinking, you know, which is kind of the narrative piece. But as we think about our route, Right, Our route has to include not just the people within our organization, but as we seek to innovate faster, we have to be connected to people outside of organization as well. And so as our organizations, leaders have to step out of their silos and really connect with like-minded individuals or even people that have obviously different ideas and perspectives or point of views and stay connected to those sources. You know, We call that capacity or, or action being a boundary spanner in the organization. And that's largely what, what I do collaborating with people from all over the country at times. So really it's about being flexible, the route being flexible towards our cause and and being open to the fact that ideas that come in and come out, some are good, some are bad, some are great ideas just at the wrong time. You got to have the wisdom to know when to go with certain things and when not to and how to move people around those compelling things. You know, when you speak about cause, is that the same as vision or purpose? Yeah, I, I think it's I think vision is a very like lofty sort of concept. You know, for years, um, you know, organizations have been writing these things called strategic plans and ultimately they're these giant documents that two people, maybe three people understand in the organization. So it's about a purpose, but that that purpose is not just uh, enacted or embodied in people in the organization, but that it's felt that there's a sense of you know, I'm a part of this. I'm part of this organization. This is what they're going towards. This is what we're going towards. And, you know, the route you talk about, because I'm envisioning as you're speaking, you know, people collaborating at a meeting. But then what happens after that? You know, and that's part of the intentionally creating that route that you're talking about, because you have to move from that collaboration in that particular place and time to collaborating throughout Right. Yeah, it's it's a little bit about there's a couple components of this collaboration thing which is big and I think for the most most people out there today myself you know I'm constantly reflecting on that um it's it's tricky you know collaboration is tricky you know it requires a certain level of uh, practice clear protocols clear process um and and knowing what outcomes you're seeking to get and so you know, as, as we try to kind of create this sense of a future of a school system that we can't really predict what it should look like, could look like, might look like, all that sort of ambiguous stuff, um, we have to do a better job of collaborating and coming together with people to do that. Hence the creation of the Collaborative Leadership Institute and soon to be announced the Collaborative Leadership uh, Laboratory. I need to say it, I'm uh, so curious. That's yeah, funny. it's good energy. It's good people. Um, and we're just working really hard not to find solutions but to better understand the problems so that we can work towards meaningful solutions together. So tell me, Bill, what type of leader are you inspired by and why? I'm really inspired by leaders who really activate me in both cognitive and emotional ways. Just, And I can't describe what type of leader that is, but somebody that I just, you know, like has 
a good energy, uh, you know, a way of a disposition about themselves that says, you know, like we're, we're working together. We're, it's just a movement. There's something really important about this person and understands how systems work, understands how to mobilize people, how to kind of design experiences that are going to help the organization grow, thrive. And so I don't have any one particular. It's more about the person to me. You know, um, and what they stand for, to be honest with you, knowing that their words are backed by their actions and vice versa. So, you know, you, you told me about some mentors or coaches. How important is that in the life of a leader? I think it's every leader's responsibility to seek those people out. In fact, if it wasn't, you know, whether I did this intentionally or not, connecting with somebody like Mike Keeney eight years ago or connecting with other folks through my network at Fordham University, I wouldn't be who I am today, you know. And so I think we have to be intentional about our own professional learning and seek out those people who have already had the experiences or are living the experiences that you kind of seek to have. I'm doing that personally right now, believe it or not, with um, a number of folks in the field of organizational development, learning development, talent ma management. Um, this is not a field that's related to our education, but you know, these are the people that I need to be around to kind of accelerate my own learning and to uh, help my organization grow. You know, that speaks to your authenticity and your integrity as well, because you live this institution, right? This institute, this is what you do. You want people to grow and learn, but you're doing that as well. So that's really important. Quite often, um, you know, coaches or, or mentors will say, oh, yes, you know, I coach and mentor, but they don't have a coach or a mentor. And that, that kind of, you know, you wonder, right? We're always needing to grow. So that's, that's important. So tell me what it means to have a good team and how would you build one or how would you create one? It's always about teamwork. There's a great example of this, uh, Carl Albrecht. He speaks about this notion of organizational intelligence. This is something I read a number of years ago. Let's use the analogy of basketball. And he asked the question of, you know, what's the difference between putting five really tall people on a basketball court versus putting five tall people on a basketball court who have developed a system, a process, the relationships, the experiences, the wisdom to really work together. And so if we look at some of our uh, organizations, whether they're in education or outside of education, they either work off of a state of entropy where there's a lot of lost energy function and uh, bad utilization of resources versus what Carl actually references syntropy being the complete synergistic flow of both purpose and, and action. And so, um, you know, we can look at our work through the lens of thermo thermodynamics as well and, and say, you know, there's a certain level of energy that exists here. Are we using it in a synergistic way? And when you can do that, that's when results come about that you never really could have predicted, you know, and that's that's the difference between taking that approach of the old school leadership style of uh, hierarchical sort of stuff, or a deliberate, a deliberate type of leadership versus what could happen here if we had the conditions for emergent leadership, where our organization is just adapting itself and shaping and driving the most important conversations that need to be happening today. So tell us about a challenge um, that you've experienced that has shaped your life or a success that um, you've come across that has shaped your life and the life of those around you. You know, it's, it's interesting. As I look back over my years and I reflect on my years as a central office administrator and, and doing work outside of, of my job as a, as a speaker or a consultant, 
You know, I, I always kind of uh, felt this need to have the answers at some times. <laughs> you know, I think there, there, was, there was some point along the... Or the, the right answer. Yeah, the right answers, you know. There was, but, but then there was some point uh, along the way, along this continuum that, you know, something clicked. And it's probably just the uh, collision of, like, many amazing mentors and coaches that I've had um, that have helped shape me in this. And so, for me, my challenge was kind of stepping out of myself, right? It was about um, kind of uh, leading from, you know, inside out. And, and understanding more about what my my gifts were, what my purpose was, and uh, you know what that meant to whoever I'm working with, and uh, it's always a challenge, right? It's always separating, um, as I, as Otto Schammer actually calls it, um, the ego and converting it into the eco. Mm-hmm. And so, as we start to think about the um, the ecosystem we're seeking to cultivate here in our school systems across Long Island, I mean, that's really um, one of the goals that I have is really to shape the conversation, uh, shift the field, the consciousness of the way we think about schools uh, today. I knew that I had to kind of develop some new skills, talents, practices, and things like that. And so I committed myself to uh, really um, developing not just cognitively, but emotionally and, and a whole bunch of different set of capacities and, um, you know, the result of that work allowed me to let go of a lot of things. You know, it allowed me to kind of be even more authentic and genuine and, and just facilitate large scale uh, group dynamics uh, with people I know and people I don't know, you know. And so that's been the the birth of our technology and learning camps here in Farmingdale. Um, We created what was called the Long Island Connected Educators uh, three years ago. We had 325 uh, educators from seven different states come here. Uh, It's it's on a Saturday in either March or April every year. And just facilitating large-scale social innovation, not necessarily about technology, but deepening our sense of awareness, our own uh, understanding of our role in the system and uh, how to take steps to lead that. And so, you know, that that to me has been the success because the best part about every one of those experiences is that although on paper one would say, you know, I'm the leader, I'm the facilitator, I'm the whatever, similarly to how I teach at Fordham University, I learn more from my students than I would ever bet they learn from me. And mm-hmm. so... When you're able to do that, and that's when I had some sort of shift or an experience that, that brought me to that state, it's it's beautiful. It's just great, and you never look back. It's a great feeling. And I want to see the opportunity for uh, us to invite more people into these social spaces so that we could truly advance a compelling conversation about and practice, a compelling practice uh, for our students and opportunities for our teachers to deliver those things. You know, you speak a lot about self-awareness. Is that a responsibility of a leader? I think it's a responsibility of any human being, but um, of course uh, of a leader. You know, again, and it's become more difficult, I think, to or have those capacities in the wake of so much complexity. I mean, there's just so much coming at a principal, at a leader today. You know, I've been uh, dedicating a lot of my time and energy and seeking out coaches of my own around the work of mindfulness. And, uh, you know, going into mindfulness work, um, I really wasn't quite sure what it was. And uh, the the best definition that I heard was truly starting to develop a better relationship with your thinking. 
And how simple is that? And so that's really, to me, what, what self-awareness is about. But until we can become more aware, develop that relationship, more or less presence where we are today and start to imagine where we want to be tomorrow, it doesn't really happen until you develop that capacity for awareness. What would you tell a new leader who's discouraged about their current working conditions or climate or culture? You know, I, I speak with educators quite a bit about these sort of things. My advice is, and it always depends on their situation, but they have to be able to come to terms with where where they are at the moment. And And what I mean by that is this, is you can't change the experience that you're going to have, right? As educators and, and whatever field we're in, we can't always change the experience, but we can change the way we experience it at times. And I, I know some of those things are in our control and sometimes they're out of our control, but we have to kind of look at it through that new lens. As my buddy Corey Mascara, my mindfulness coach and colleague, really tells me it's about developing kind of a beginner's mindset and, and developing those capacities for self-awareness, but recognizing how am I going to experience this situation? And what if we looked at it this way? Throughout our lives, professionally, personally, we have these ups and we have these downs, the ups are great. <laughs> the downs are not great. But what if those downs are there for a reason? You know, what if there's a purpose that those things serve? And what if we were to attend to those situations that occur in our lives that are just the down points, but attend to them in a way that tries to make sense of why this is here? Why am I getting put through this anguish, this challenge, and start to grow from it and start to learn from it, but be absolutely intentional about it? And by attending to the actual downswing of, of your life, personally, professionally, you're more or less giving it some validation, but saying goodbye to it. You know, you're, you're giving an opportunity to kind of mourn the process, as they say, but to uh, make way for, for the next uh, good wave. And so I think it's really an internal sort of process that one has to go through. We can't always change the experience, but we can ultimately change often how we experience it. So... John Maxwell wrote a book. It's um, I love the title. It says, "Sometimes you win, sometimes you learn." Mm, I like that. And um, through all those, you know, all those ups and downs, there are opportunities to to learn and figure out what, even what not to do. But what if what if those opportunities are there for a very specific reason? We could complain about this or complain about that, but if we truly you know, see these opportunities as opportunities for growth and not let us knock us down, then, uh, then that's critical. Right. And, and that's when we need each other because sometimes when we're in it, we don't see it, right? Yeah. That's and the... we need somebody else on the outside to say, wait, maybe if you can look at it this way. And that's really helpful. You know, it's interesting you say that. If I, I could share, you know, that's kind of like the blind spot that many people talk about, you know, uh, leadership books and, um, you know, the work I've been doing with Theory U, Otto Schaumer, out of uh, the MIT uh, U Lab, the Presencing Institute, has really helped me see this pretty clearly. We have this blind spot, and so this is why I go back to this notion of collaboration. You know, what is the what's the function of collaboration? And I think ultimately, at times, it's not about just producing more worksheets or more learning ex morning packets or, or whatever that or might to be say or we're to say we're, we're doing something or to say it. Right. But oftentimes I think the higher level of collaboration is when you have a dynamic among the people that we're working in a group together. You helped me to see a blind spot that existed in me. And I experienced this just yesterday at Fordham University. On Saturday, I'm sorry, Fordham University. Mm -hmm. 
when I was teaching a class in strategic planning and change. And uh, we had done what's called the case clinic uh, study. And so they presented the students, four students at once, arranged in groups of four or five. And they presented as the case giver their problem of practice. And the job of the coaches who are working in collaboration in service to the case giver are there not to give solutions, not to fix the problem, just to help them see the problem a little bit more clearly and from a different point of view or perspective. Such a powerful practice in terms of collaboration. But we have to create more spaces like that, you know, in our work in education. Bill, many leaders describe themselves as lifelong learners. What does that mean to you and what are you learning now? And so what am I learning about right now? Um, I'm doing a lot of work around emotional intelligence. I'm doing a lot of work in positive psychology. Um, I'm spending a lot of time in the field of mindfulness. And I'm surrounding myself with people that have already been there before. You know, in my doctoral work at Fordham and, and the speaking that I do, I talk about this idea that we can literally draft off the learning of other people. We can get behind them and we can follow them and we can accelerate our learning in ways that were never quite possible the way they are today. And so um, the key function of this learning is also tied directly to a heightened level of self-awareness because ultimately what is the goal of learning? Is the goal of learning for just to add more knowledge or is it to start to shift our frames of reference, our mental models, our beliefs, our practices, what, what, what I would ultimately call unlearning. You know? mm-hmm. So I look at learning as an intentional approach to, uh, to begin the process of unlearning, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably one of the key things that our leadership has to do uh, and organizations have to do is to start to find ways to both scale our learning but also our unlearning. So you spoke a little bit about emotional intelligence. Personally, I think that's incredibly important. Can you kind of unpack that a little bit more? Yeah, certainly. So, um, you know, a lot of the learning that I've been doing lately in in preparation for the Leadership Institute is um, around this idea of advancing both digital and social innovation in schools. And, um, you know, here in Farmingdale, I'm the uh, Administrative Director for Innovation, Communications, and Organizational Development. And uh, one of the things that we've come to realize is what is innovation, right? Innovation is like this gigantic new buzzword that's just been around. And um, I'm probably the only guy with it in my title here in Long Island. And it's actually officially in my title now. But, um, you know, it's a lot of fun. There's a couple of things. There's a couple antecedents that need to exist before innovation can take place. And so if we think about innovation, I did this with my buddy Corey the other day. We, he, we just started saying the word innovation. And if you say the word innovation, innovation, innovation three times in your head, what comes up? And if you sound it out really carefully and you listen really carefully, the reality is is what you hear is innervation, innervation, innervation. Not innovation, but this idea that innovation is actually an inner internal process of rethinking your role in the environment or, or, or the practice. And so let's get back to emotional intelligence and positive psychology. In order for the capacities for innovation to happen, in order for innovation to happen, you have to have the ability for people to feel both creative, to explore their curiosity. Um, these are some of the critical antecedents. But people are not prepared to begin to be creative, to begin to be collaborative, to begin to be curious 
when they don't have the psychological safety, the conditions for people to take the risks, to try things. And so that's this, the part of emotional intelligence that we have to start to, to, uh, to develop or, or, or um, cultivate in our organizations if we want this innovation thing to happen. Interesting because as leaders, we need to create that environment quite often that we don't have that environment so we lose a lot of that creativity you know people come in and they're bright-eyed wide-eyed they want to do they want to change the world and when we don't set the stage for that we lose a lot of that and that's unfortunate but you're speaking to something that really moves my heart and gives me inspiration to be innovative people <laughs> people especially educators they want to be part of something important yes. they want to be part of something bigger than themselves we just have to have bold courageous leadership that mm -hmm. kind of creates those conditions and uh it's been truly exciting here in farmingdale to uh create you know the connected educators of long island event which has been a hub for this innovation this crowdsourcing of energy of knowledge of learning um and they're popping up in, in various other places so that's very inspiring. So tell me, Bill, what have you read that our listeners should read and why? You know, I, my favorite book at the moment, I have a lot of them. <laughs> I, figured, I figured that. <laughs> my absolute favorite book at the moment is, uh, is actually uh, Theory U. Otto Scharmer's work, I mentioned him before, and it really gets to the heart of how we create profound innovation and change in any system. And so Otto outlines his theory U as being, uh, if you just imagine a U shape, at the very top of the U, the top left of the U, there's this notion of sensing, right? Sensing our internal environment, our external environment, and Essentially, what that means is suspending judgment. You know, one can look at that as a data collection tool, but it's also developing a higher self-awareness. Um, but to begin to um, suspend judgment about things, uh, we talked about this a little bit before, but then when you get down to the bottom of the U, he refers to this thing called presencing. And presencing is really coming to terms with our current reality. You know, really making sense of it. You know, all that other stuff, all that stuff that occurred in the past, I'm ready to confront right now, this moment right now, this sense of presencing. And I'm ready to do that with a lot of people. You know, it's actually the, it's the framework we're going to be using July 6th and 7th for the uh, Collaborative Leadership uh, Program. But um, what happens after presencing, right? Many people will say in, the, in strategic planning, there's a lot of planning, but there's not enough doing. And I think sometimes what happens is we try to create these plans these objectives so that they're perfect. And the problem is, is they're never perfect. And so what he refers to is this notion of prototyping at the top of the U, enacting ideas and going through a process which he calls prototyping as being the point eight. It doesn't have to be perfect. It's just got to be point eight. You know, I don't know where he came up with that number, but it, it works for me. And the whole point is to put that idea out into action for critique with your colleagues, with your teams, and, and to grow it from there because it's just a, a constant state of flow, a constant state of change, a constant state of uh, action learning. You know, that's what we're doing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, and you know, so often um, fear stops us, correct? Yeah, so one would say that fear is, is the biggest deterrent. Um, you know, again, when you have the conditions that support the emotional intelligence, the growth of that, um, I, I start to see fear 
kind of disappearing. It's a big part of this thing, and um, it takes time. Theory you by Otto Scharmer. Okay. So tell us, Bill, what you do on a daily basis to set your mind for the responsibilities you have. You're, you're running, you're part of this, you know, the director of this technology department in the school district, but you also have this, you know, institute. There's a lot of responsibilities on you. How do you set your mind? You know, everything is driven by my cause. Everything is driven by driven by my why. And I'm just incredibly fortunate to work in an organization that really supports that. Um, in fact, as someone who's done quite a bit of public speaking and, you know, keynotes at conferences and work for other schools, I'm really excited that my organization supports that because not only am I talking about the great things going on in Farmingdale, but I have to tell you, I'm learning so much from these other people and bringing these ideas back to our organization and just developing the capacities in our principals, um, working directly with the superintendent and the assistant superintendents to more or less make sure that our uh, systems and structures and resources are in place to further support um, initiatives that we have going on in the district. And so, you know, if, if we don't know where we're going, if we don't know what we're trying to create to some extent, that can get a little bit uh, tricky. So frequent, um, often very short conversations with the team here, and it's a great team, mm-hmm. is what kind of puts us on our uh, path. But walk me through what you do daily. So um, I, I've always been a morning purpose, uh, person, but um, three kids, seven, five, and three, I'm a mm-hmm. super early person. Um, and so my kids for the last two months have been up at six o'clock in the morning every day riding bikes. We do that for 45 minutes. And then uh, again, well, shower and come to work. you can exercise at the same time, <laughs> spend quality time with your kids. Yeah, and that's a big part of that's it, great. right? Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes when we work too hard or work too much, we start to... Uh, disconnect with that and we have to be aware of that you know that's a big part of your own professional journey is being connected personally to what's important to you and so you know I come into work and basically you know there's always countless emails to catch up on and and meetings to prepare for and that sort of stuff but what I try to do is generate a list of the five most important things that I need to accomplish today and so I uh, attempt. I'm not always successful, um, but to start off with a very brief kind of meditation just to kind of really connect with those ideas to get back to what I need to accomplish today, you know, and and, and put that on paper, you know, com- committed to writing. Is there any technology or app that has been particularly useful to you in scheduling your time? You know, I, I can't say that. I mean, we're a Google Apps for Education district, and Google's been been great. As somebody that loves technology, there's nothing greater than my secretary and my team um, that kind of keeps us flowing, keep keeping us organized on the work that's about to come up. But Google Docs is always something that always, you know, enriches and deepens and extends ends more or less the collaboration that we have so that's made a that streamlined so much for us all right so we've come to the last question uh tell us bill if you were to go back in time what would you tell the younger you about leadership uh, you know when i was younger i don't think i had a clue what leadership was and uh interestingly as a student i was a kid that struggled my entire life and i think what i would kind of tell myself is uh you know, uh, don't be so hard on yourself when it comes to the, uh, the the tests, the scores, the assignments, all that other stuff. Um, but to um, really start to identify, you know, what it is you enjoy, what it is that you like to do, and what provides you your joy. And 
seek out those opportunities, which I believe I did a lot as a kid. But, you know, uh, this thing called school uh, often, you know, gotten away from me, which maybe that's why I'm so passionate about creating these opportunities and experiences for kids that aren't, uh, we'll call it book smart. Right. <laughs> So, so they're fun and innovative. Yeah, I mean, that's what we're, we're, we've been really focused on this year in creation of our innovation lab and maker spaces throughout the district. And we're attracting, you know, a whole set of kids that are just totally finding a sense of belonging to the school. They've served on panels for us at conferences. They've served on, you know, presentations at conferences to the Board of Education. These kids have just uh, done fascinating work. And uh, we can't wait for the future. Oh, that's great. Well, Bill, I want to thank you so much for um, not just adding value to me, but to our listeners. My pleasure. I appreciate being on the show and uh, best of luck. Thank you so much. Hello, leaders. Don't forget to go to our website at masterleadership.org to get show notes for this episode and to find out how to get a free coaching session from one of our exceptional educational leadership coaches that are featured on this podcast. Until next time. Bye.